This is exactly right. I'm Kate Winkler Dawson, a journalist, author, and podcast host. And I'm Paul Holes, a retired investigator with experience solving some of America's most notorious cold cases. Together, we host Buried Bones, a historical true crime podcast on the Exactly Right Network. Each week, we examine a different case from history and use our years of experience and 21st century forensics to bring new insights into these very old tragedies. Like the time the Sausage King of Chicago's wife went missing in 1897. Don't miss new episodes every Wednesday. Follow Buried Bones wherever you get your podcasts. Hold on. Here's the kitchen. Yeah. So this is so fascinating. Some of it is really structurally intact, and some of it is not. So that's kind of where we just came from. That door, that window in the middle over there takes you to that yeah. long hallway. And then this is the kitchen. So you've got the kitchen, you've got another outbuilding that looks like it could have been in the 18th century, a carriage house, a lumber shed, so storage, a dairy based on the ventilation, privies in the back, um, a well. Historian and interpreter Nicole Brown is giving me a tour of Colonel John Chisel's home on East Francis Street in Williamsburg. There are large bedrooms, many, many ornate fireplaces, and several outdoor buildings where enslaved people once toiled. Nicole says that Chisel's house was the epitome of gentry wealth in colonial Virginia. It's a very large operation. So if you're this wealthy, which I mean the Chisels are ultra wealthy, they're gonna have their own dairy. They're gonna have their own private well. They're gonna have, honestly, those two privies with the beautiful garden, that's a status symbol, right? Um, so all of this, especially now being inside, this building, it looks very simple on the exterior, but this screams ultra elite gentry Virginia wealth to me in a very profound kind of way. Seeing this house gives me historical context for the story. Colonel John Chisel must have felt tremendous financial pressure in 1766 to keep up with his family's lifestyle, their reputation in Williamsburg. I'll quickly summarize where we are with this story. Chisel's son-in-law, John Robinson, had recently died, and as his duplicity was revealed, it tarnished the Chisel family name. That would have been devastating for a member of the gentry in 18th century Virginia. So the scandal starts to unfold, you know, around May, people start to say, oh, I think the late speaker may have been doing some things in the treasury he shouldn't have done. Less than one month after John Robinson's death, news of his financial scandal was spreading across the colonies and then across the Atlantic Ocean to England. The revelations that Robinson had loaned hundreds of thousands of pounds to his friends had alarmed the gentry, which were the top 5% of the population. John Robinson and his cronies had broken the trust of the other 95% of the colony. And then, because John Chisel was Robinson's primary business partner, the scandal had become focused on him, the one who had benefited the most from his son-in-law's fraud. So in the summer of 1766, John Chisel was distraught. But he hoped that perhaps a visit to his mines in the country would quell his concerns over money. 
Like most upper-class colonists, he was hopelessly in debt, and the rural mining operation represented promising income. It was the afternoon of June 3, 1766, in Western Virginia, at a tiny tavern called Mosby's. For reference, the tavern was originally built as a small one-room house by Benjamin Mosby in 1740, two decades earlier. He soon began using it as a tavern. And when the County of Cumberland was formed in 1749, the tavern served as the county's courthouse. It would later be used as a staging area for George Washington's Continental Army during the Revolutionary War. But just to be clear, Mosby's Tavern was small. There, John Chisel's jovial conversation with Scottish merchant Robert Rutledge had suddenly become tense. Chisel had used some obscene language defined as somewhat liberal of oaths in the newspaper, and the drunken Rutledge scolded him for it. When Chisel responded irately, Rutledge began to argue back and hiccup. He was that intoxicated. John Robinson's descendant, Simon Robinson, reminds us of Rutledge's station in life and why insulting Chisel was such a mistake in the 1700s. Robert Routledge, although he'd done very well for himself and had land and had done well in trade, he wasn't of the right class. He wasn't of the ruling class. We hear a lot about the honor code, why duels were declared, and why so many men died over insults. Some of these insults were much more polite than what we read on Twitter. By all accounts, Robert Rutledge seemed to behave like a gentleman, but he was drinking that afternoon, really drinking, and his confrontation with Chisel seemed out of the ordinary. But keep this in mind, John Chisel was not drinking, or at least not outwardly drunk. So why did he react in such a vicious, vile way by calling Rutledge a derogatory term for Scottish people? Historian Julie Richter says that this was a case of toxic masculinity in 18th century colonial America. Oh, yeah, maybe part that he's, it, it's somebody of a lower social level, somebody from Scotland. So you've got that on one side, plus I'm a member of the elite. You know, I've read through this stuff multiple times, again, because it, it's just such an interesting intersection of social level Um, identity, um, masculinity. Here's a reminder of where we are in the story. John Chisel had just returned from his mines in Western Virginia when he stopped at Mosby Tavern for the afternoon. Both men were in the tavern and with their respective friends. And Chisel was in very high spirits thinking that a mining operation was going to be a solution to some of his financial woes. So he was in very high spirits, but being very loud and rather obnoxious. And this didn't go down well with a rather drunk Robert Routledge, who effectively said, do you think you could tone down your language? It's not befitting of uh, this establishment. Colonel Chisel swung around and glared at Rutledge. His entire personality changed. Anger flashed in his eyes. This, of course, was a red rag to John Chisel. He said, how dare you speak to me in this way? You're a ghastly Scot, <laughs> and you're from a lowly stock. You know, you're not an aristocrat as I am. 
and you may not speak to me in that way. This, of course, with two men who had been drinking, escalated, and drink was thrown at each other. Chisel then followed it with some fire tongs and a candlestick. Robert Routledge got hold of a chair. Possibly to defend himself, you could argue, if there's candlesticks and fire tongs coming at you. Chisel screamed for the enslaved person who came with him to retrieve a weapon from another room. Chisel ordered his slave boy to get his sword. He, he threatened death on the boy if he didn't obey his command. I mean, it's difficult to understand that today. This may have been an everyday occurrence, but the boy returned with the sword. Rutledge was so intoxicated, he needed the help of his friend, Joseph Carrington, to drag him along towards the back door. Carrington had the keys, but he fumbled with them as he tried to unlock the door to escape. Chisel charged toward the table that separated them. The other men in the tavern squinted in the hazy, smoky light from the candles. They tried to stay out of the way, but there was no place to go. The gentleman in the room must have assumed that Chisel would just continue yelling, that eventually he would calm himself. That's not what happened. So, a lot of the other men in this room, they don't assume that the sword's going to come out because the sword is in that other room that he and Rutledge were supposedly supposed to be sharing. It's a separate house, is what they say. But he threatens this manservant so badly that he goes to get the sword and he brings it into the tavern room. Colonel Chisel comes back out and says, get Robert Rutledge out of this room. Seething as Carrington struggled with the keys, Chisel baited Rutledge by repeating the phrase, Presbyterian fellow. Rutledge couldn't stop himself. He smirked and replied that he was just as much a gentleman as Chisel. Chisel became even more enraged at this last insult. He screamed and gripped the sword. This was the wrong thing for a Scottish merchant to say to a member of the gentry. That was certainly crossing a line. Rutledge was so drunk that he didn't seem to realize that he was in danger. He stepped toward Chisel as Carrington desperately tried to draw him backward. The colonel stood with the unsheathed sword in his hand. It's probably a pretty long sword. You know, we're not talking about a knife. We're not talking about a switchblade. We're talking about something that might be a foot, two feet long, right? It's a big, heavy object. And the point of that kind of a sword is that it's meant to do damage. The men in the tavern looked alarmed as the smoke thickened. Some even left. There's a scuffle, there's an altercation. You can see from the diagram they move from place to place around the room until eventually you have Colonel Chisel on one side of a table, Robert Rutledge on the other. Nicole just mentioned a diagram. She's talking about an artist's rendering that someone drew of the crime scene, one that was later printed in the newspaper. It actually became the first crime scene diagram ever publicly published, the blueprint for a document that is now a staple in so many criminal cases. Now the other men in the tavern became more involved and tried to de-escalate the whole thing. Colonel Chisel is apparently being held back by both Mosby men, and Robert Rutledge is being held back by a man named Carrington, and a man named Swan is pushing him back. The men stood across each other with a table in between, with Chisel still bellowing insults at the Scottish merchant. They were yelling just six feet away from each other. Colonel Chisel was livid by this time. No one could stop him, not even two large, strong men. His hand tightened on the grip of the sword. 
It was a weapon used regularly by men in the gentry for protection while on the road. There was a bit of a dance around the tavern with lots of words exchanged, people trying to intervene to say, calm down, calm down. And the final act happened over a table where Chisel raised his sword. And then as Chisel's friend Samuel Swan stood in between the men, Chisel lunged forward. And at this point, Colonel Chisel's sword goes through Swan's coat and into Rutledge's heart. He slumps down onto Carrington and then down onto the floor. His coat is pierced by the sword as it goes into Robert Rutledge's heart. Robert Rutledge apparently goes immediately silent, is caught by a man, I think his name is Campbell, or something along those lines. With just one thrust, Robert Rutledge was dead, slumped in Joseph Carrington's arms. A man grabbed John Chisel from behind, but it was too late for Robert Rutledge. Chisel pulled the sword from Rutledge's body as the Scotsman gasped for breath. And he dies right there in front of John Chisel, who apparently shows absolutely positively zero remorse. He says something to the effect of, I aimed at his heart and I hit it. Well, first Chisel said, he is dead and I killed him. The witnesses in the tavern reported that Rutledge died on the spot, but that seems unlikely. A stab wound to the heart would likely cause excessive bleeding and he would have bled out. At least that's what Paul Holes told me. This was likely a very painful death for Robert Rutledge. Witnesses say that Chisel looked at Samuel Swan. The men had once been colleagues in the House of Burgesses. Swan was also a member of the gentry, a gentleman like Chisel. Chisel squinted at the hole in Swan's wool jacket. He doesn't ask at all ever about Robert Rutledge, but he does ask Swan about his coat. You know, is your coat fine? It was not. He could not be more connected to the powers that be, to the establishment. And when he just casually murders this man and he doesn't express any concern for Rutledge, instead he asks if Mr. Swan was okay. The sword went through Mr. Swan's coat. Did I injure him? Chisel thought so little of the Scottish merchant that his life was easily discarded by the gentry. That was the message telegraphed inside the tavern that day in 1766. The room was quiet. Chisel seemed more concerned about the coat of a member of the gentry than he was about a man dead on the floor of the tavern. Chisel looked over at the enslaved person who had come along on the trip, the one who had retrieved his sword and certainly must have been traumatized by all of this. Chisel calmly and deliberately ordered him to take the sword, dripping in blood, to another room. He told him to clean it carefully and rub it well with tallow, which was beef or mutton fat. Chisel was concerned that it might rust. Then, while the body of Robert Rutledge lay on the floor, Chisel did something extraordinary and, frankly, disgusting. He ordered the tavern workers to make him a drink, a big drink. He sits and orders a bowl of punch, even though there's a man whom he has just outright murdered laying on the floor. Rutledge was drinking, but Chisel did not have a drink until after 
the stabbing, at which time he calls for a bowl of punch to, to uh, calm his nerves. I'm not sure if Chisel's nerves were frayed, but who knows. He didn't seem contrite over any of this. He sat on the floor of the tavern close to Rutledge's body, drinking cupfuls of punch. He continued to bellow insults at Rutledge. Chisel screamed, he deserves his fate, damn him. I aimed at his heart and I have hit it. Anyways, he's sitting there and he continues, even though Rutledge is literally dead on the floor, to hurl insults at the man, whom prior to this evening, everyone would have thought was his friend, you know, this man whom he knew and, and cared for. And at no point do any of the, the primary documentation that survives indicate that he showed any concern for his erstwhile friend, Robert Rutledge. They had known each other. They had been friends previously. So just the, the kind of casual murder of this individual, oh well. None of the men tried to move either man for quite a while, but each witness noted where they were and what they saw in the moment. Nobody takes him out of the room. They eventually remove Robert Rutledge's dead, bleeding body from the room. So imagine this, a room full of witnesses who just watched a man murder another man over angry words. The killer is sitting on the floor, rapidly becoming intoxicated, and no one is doing anything about it. Where is the law? Why isn't anyone coming to arrest John Chisel for murder? That's one of the controversies around this story. I cannot help but believe that he was entirely confident when he murdered Robert Rutledge that he would pay no price for it, or at the very most that he might be charged with manslaughter. Nobody is detaining him right now. No. So, you know, in the period here, it's going to be a magistrate who detains him anyway. So I don't recall there being any mention of a magistrate being present. You, as a, as a free citizen, can arrest someone. Uh, this is where we get the modern uh, misinterpretation of what a citizen's arrest actually is. <laughs> but uh, you can, as a free uh, citizen of Virginia, uh, uh, lay your hands on someone. That's literally what an arrest is, is to lay your hands on someone to detain them. But he's not going anywhere. It's pretty clear he intends to stay. Eventually, John Chisel would sober up. And when he did, what would he say happened that day? Would he feel remorse? Would he admit that he attacked an unarmed man in a room full of witnesses? Would he acknowledge that Robert Rutledge was innocent, an unwitting victim in a terrible tragedy? Somehow I doubt it. Other patrons in the tavern had already begun recounting their own versions of the story. Remember, this was a very small room with many witnesses, but a lot of those people had been drinking for hours, and it might have been difficult for them to even make sense of what they had seen. There was smoke billowing from the fireplace. The light was dim because the room was filled with candles. These were not good circumstances for witnessing a murder. Basically, if, if you go back to the scene of the crime, and we've done this, put all the people in the room, put them where they were supposed to be at certain times, plus the lack of light with candlelight, and at the moment that the sword actually pierces his heart, anything could have happened. Chisel's friends were already building a case for a very specific kind of defense, self-defense. 
People sometimes try to excuse his behavior saying, well, he wasn't drunk. Other people try to say, well, well, we don't know. But he's picking up every heavy object he can find in this room to inflict damage. And I'm sure I don't have to tell you anything. As I think I've heard Paul Hulse say before, anything can be a weapon if used with proper force and intent. You can make a candlestick a weapon. So now he's picked this very sharp object, this very big, heavy object that is going to be his weapon. But then there's the matter of where the weapon struck the victim. Yeah, he was stabbed. He, you know, it was a deliberate stabbing. You know, he did he did not fall into the sword. There are people who say that they saw chisel lunge. There are people who say that he didn't lunge, uh, that he was holding his sword out. Uh, another thing that people don't consider is, again, the size of the room. The table over which these guys are arguing are is three feet, five and a half inches, you know, take a yard. The sword was two and a half or three feet. I mean, this yardstick. Eventually, John Chisel's friends, some of those in the tavern, would offer the law this story. Chisel did snidely call Robert Rutledge a Presbyterian fellow, which was an insult. Rutledge swung around, startling Chisel. Yes, Chisel was still holding the sword, but then he felt threatened, and he lowered the point of his weapon and then held it without lunging forward. Rutledge was the one who had moved forward toward Chisel. Because the Scottish merchant was drunk, he accidentally fell onto the sword. It went through his heart, and Chisel felt it. He pulled out the sword and realized what had happened. Chisel then told witnesses to take away Rutledge. It had all been a horrible mistake. Chisel had not attacked Rutledge. Rutledge had attacked him, and he had caused his own death. It was self-defense, but it was also an accident. Chisel's friends admitted that Chisel had been extremely angry. If Robert Rutledge had not verbally abused Chisel, they said, then none of this would have happened. They were blaming the victim, which happens with both female and male victims. It's hard to believe that this would be a valid defense, but it was. This seems like an extraordinary amount of anger, even for a simple insult. Right. And it's interesting because uh, the first anonymous article published in the Gazette on July 18th actually says that. I'm paraphrasing here, but essentially says, you know, while this is an insult, you usually would let it go if it were a friend or someone who's extremely intoxicated, of which Robert Rutledge apparently was both. Does this speak to Colonel Chisel's personality? Maybe. Does it also speak to the idea of how important status is and having people stay in their place? I think so. And here's what's complicated about this case. According to the law in the colony of Virginia, self-defense could work as a legal justification because technically, Robert Rutledge threw the first punch. He was technically the instigator, not John Chisel. Rutledge, by the letter of the law, he is the first person to assault someone because he throws wine from his glass uh, onto Colonel Chisel. And according to the newspaper, I think this is a quote, some small part did land on him. (laughs) (laughs) At least some small part is. (laughs) Which uh, which I read and laughed. But Colonel Chisel returns the favor by throwing a bowl of punch at Mr. Rutledge. And then the two continue with their insults. So this is a duel. Uh, I suppose it's a duel in the same way that someone might spit at someone else and that person shoots them, right? 
if it is a duel, it is certainly an ill-matched duel. As the story spread, the situation didn't strike most colonists as self-defense. Colonel Chisel was clearly the aggressor, and Robert Rutledge was unarmed. This, said most colonists, was murder. The people in the tavern that afternoon all declared it, and they told the newspapers that John Chisel had stabbed a local merchant. This case should have been easy to prosecute, in theory. There is no case more open and shut than this. There are multiple witnesses. They're all of good character. The one person in the newspaper who is recorded as countering what anybody says is a person who is known to be of ill character and offers several versions depending on who's listening to him at any, any time. But for the gentry in the 13 colonies, it was not open and shut. After all, being accused of murder was scandalous and certainly not befitting of a member of the higher class. I don't understand why you're holding me accountable for this. It seems to be Chisel's reaction to it. And I think that that kind of casual response to life of individuals in the lower sorts, or at least stations in society below yours, is pervasive. And because that attitude was so pervasive among the elites, something else began to happen organically. Some of them changed their stories. The witnesses in the tavern began to side with their own social class. Remember that on that day, the tavern had been filled with a mix of classes, gentry people as well as merchants and servants and enslaved people. Friends of Robert Rutledge claimed that John Chisel was the aggressor, but the friends of Chisel said it was an accident. It comes down to, in the room, those people who, again, liked Rutledge or are on Rutledge's side, they have one view, and the people who are on Chisel's side, they have another view. The expectation if you are born into a certain station is that you will serve in the ruling class of Virginia. And I'm speaking specifically of the gentry station. If you are a gentryman, especially if you are a first son, if you are a property holder, it is your duty to serve the people in your jurisdiction, and perhaps that includes all of Virginia. And John Chisel was a former lawmaker in the House of Burgesses. As a Burgess, as a, if you're high enough in station, as a councilman, as a magistrate, as an alderman, whatever, you know, vestryman, there you go. And, uh, well, here is an example of somebody who is the highest in Virginia society behaving rather badly, and it gets a lot worse. That's right. It does get so much worse. Don't let gimmicky wellness culture fool you. You can become a morning person without following a 20-step program or investing in expensive tech. The solution is simple. Good, old-fashioned, restorative sleep. The secret to sleep success is Beam's Dream Powder, a science-backed hot cocoa drink made for sleep. 
The mix comes in delicious flavors like chocolate peanut butter, cinnamon cocoa, and sea salt. Better sleep has never tasted better or been sugar-free. If you're still not sure if Dream Powder is right for you, in a clinical study, 93% of participants reported Dream helped them get better sleep. I really enjoyed the cinnamon cocoa flavor of Beam. It really worked and it helped me stay asleep all night long. Find out why Forbes and the New York Times are all talking about Beam and why it's trusted by the world's top athletes and business professionals. If you want to try Beam's best-selling dream powder, you'll get up to 40% off for a limited time when you go to shopbeam.com slash wicked and use wicked at checkout. That's shopbeam.com slash wicked and use code wicked for up to 40% off. As news about the murder began to spread, much of the public became incensed. The papers described Chisel's nonchalant reaction to the stabbing. They detailed his abusive rantings toward the Scottish merchant. The reporters concluded by declaring that John Chisel sat on the floor of the tavern near Rutledge's body and got drunk. Members of the elite seemed to gravitate toward Chisel's explanation. But Simon Robinson says that the 95% of the colonists who weren't gentry were outraged. The main altercation that led to the murder was a man of lower class spoke to me in a way he shouldn't have done. Now, when that is being read by the general populace in the uh, newspapers, I mean, that must have been enraging to read that. Then to see that the families were intertwined, the Chisels and the Robinsons, First, John Robinson had stolen hundreds of thousands of pounds from the colony. This had drilled Virginia further into debt. And then his father-in-law had murdered a member of the lower class and assumed he would face no consequences. It wasn't a good look. The financial scandal was, was blowing up, looking after his own, looking after his friends, looking after other rich people. And as you say, linking that in with taxes that were hurting ordinary people. I think it was part of a process which made the general public feel that these people are not fit to govern us. We need change. Nicole Brown says that this hadn't been the first time that a member of the gentry had insulted or even killed a white working class person. I make that distinction because while enslaved people were certainly murdered, they weren't considered people. But this murder felt different because of Chisel's reaction. It's not to say that the ultra-elite have not commit crimes prior to this point um, or used their privilege or their nepotism to get what they want done in the colony of Virginia. It's that I think he genuinely didn't think he was going to be held accountable for it. Virginia exists in a government system that relies on people of a certain station behaving to a certain level of quality. There had been miscarriages of justice before this case, and there would be after. Two of the most famous men in colonial America were killed in separate incidents, and their killers were both privileged. Both got away with murder because of their status in life. John Chisel's wife's family, the Randolphs, had been embroiled in countless scandals. 
One of the most dramatic happened in 1793 when Richard Randolph and his wife Judith went on trial for murder. The wealthy young couple had visited the estate of some friends and took along Judith's younger sister. Nancy Randolph had been living with them for months before the trip. At the estate in Southern Virginia, Nancy became very ill, according to several enslaved people on the property. But only Richard, her brother-in-law, was able to attend to her. The next day, all three Randolphs left the property. But later, the rumor amongst the enslaved people was that Nancy had been pregnant by Richard. And when she gave birth that night, Richard and his wife Judith killed the baby and disposed of the body to keep the secret. Of course, Richard, Nancy, and Judith all denied this, but Richard and Judith were charged with murder. Thanks to the family's wealth, they were defended by both Patrick Henry and John Marshall, He was the future Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court. Both men argued brilliantly, and eventually Richard and Judith Randolph were acquitted. The enslaved people on the property swore that there were remains of a baby there. But by Virginia law, black people were not allowed to testify in a court case. So it's likely that someone got away with murder. In 1806, one of the Founding Fathers was murdered by a member of his own wealthy family. George Wythe will actually show up in the next episode of Chisel's story. But 40 years later, Wythe would become suspicious as people in his own household became violently ill after a visit from his troubled grandnephew, 17-year-old George Sweeney. When Wythe himself also became ill, He suspected he was being poisoned, but his physician said it was probably cholera. Wythe changed his will, removing George as one of the beneficiaries, but now Wythe was dying of what he believed was arsenic poisoning. On his deathbed, Wythe begged the doctor, cut me, which seemed to be a request for an autopsy. But when the time came to do the autopsy, The physician didn't use the correct test for arsenic, and the results were inconclusive. George Sweeney used his family's wealth to hire well-known attorneys when he was charged, and those attorneys poked holes in the colony's case, and he was acquitted. Privilege is power in our courts. In 1766, the colonists who were angry and disappointed with John Chisel were only comforted by the idea that a member of the gentry would finally be forced to pay for his crimes. John Robinson was dead, and so many other wealthy colonists seemed to be above the law. But not John Chisel, not this time. He would not be able to escape a trial, they believed, or the noose. So the wheels of justice began to grind. A coroner examined Robert Rutledge's body and made a determination. So a coroner is called in. This is very important. A coroner is called in to determine the cause of the death. And the cause of the death is a pierced heart. And by the uh, testimony or uh, the statements made by the people around, it is at the result of a thrust from Colonel John Chisel. It sounds like John Chisel was about to be charged with murder. The coroner had declared that Chisel's sword had been the weapon, but the coroner didn't declare it a murder. That wasn't his job. 
His job was simply to declare a cause of death. Now let's return to the tavern on the day of Rutledge's murder. And they contact the sheriff of that county, who, if my memory serves me correctly, is Jesse Thomas. Jesse Thomas is called to collect Colonel Chisel. Chisel seems surprised as he was ordered to put down the punch bowl and get off the floor. He was walked out the door and immediately remanded to the county jail while the sheriff interviewed witnesses. Chisel remained in jail for seven days. That must have been incredibly upsetting for him. So rarely had a member of the gentry even visited a jail, let alone be imprisoned in one. But the owner of the tavern, Benjamin Mosby, kept Chisel well-fed as he sat behind bars. And even after sobering up, he showed no signs of remorse for killing Robert Rutledge. Sheriff Jesse Thomas used that week to investigate the case against John Chisel. Surely Thomas must have been cautious and nervous. The accusation of murder against a member of the gentry would be unpopular, but so would the notion that a killer had gone free. So Thomas was dutiful and thorough as he collected witness statements. When the prosecutor read Thomas's notes, they formally declared Chisel with feloniously murdering Robert Rutledge. There would be essentially a bail hearing in a nearby court. There, Chisel insisted he was not guilty and demanded to be released on bail. He sat in the examining court in front of a panel of judges. Eight witnesses testified, including the men who were standing closest to Chisel and Rutledge. Some of them were Chisel's friends. They detailed the argument, the escalation of the abusive language, and then the stabbing. They were very matter-of-fact, though none would admit that it was clearly murder. And then he goes before the examining court, which is held in the court or in the tavern. The president of the court informed Colonel John Chisel that after careful deliberation, they would not allow him to be released on bail. There is no difference between peers or commoners as to bail. Chisel seemed devastated and furious. This was a surprising turn for him. As if being kept in a county jail weren't demeaning enough, now he could face a trial in Williamsburg where everyone knew him. And then he would also be sent to wait in the jail in the city where all of the gentry could see him. But the justices really had no choice. Wherever the accused's crime took place, they're sent to Williamsburg to stand trial here in the Capitol before the general court. But Carson Hudson says there was likely another reason why the justices sent him off. Basically, I'm pretty sure the justices there are going, oh, my God, let's get rid of this. <laughs> so, yeah, let's say, you know, bump him on up to the governor, let the governor handle this. I, you know, we're, we're nobody. So soon, John Chisel was loaded onto a carriage. Sheriff Thomas held the examining court's warrant as he ordered the driver to head towards Williamsburg. So Chisel is going to be brought here into the city to attend the public jail until he can be tried at the court of Oye and Terminer. John Chisel would be tried before the general court, but not before spending time in the city jail. 
there seemed to be a real possibility that he could be convicted of murder, though self-defense could potentially create some reasonable doubt. Regardless, he had never been in a worse crisis. But perhaps there was some hope. After all, John Chisel did have some very powerful friends. What we see with this particular case is how willing the guys in the status quo, the powerful, the wealthy, the gentry, are willing to go to protect one of their own. Because in protecting one of their own, they're actually protecting their own system. They are able to sort of perpetuate it, in part, through closing ranks around this guy. So, he's on his way to Williamsburg, right? This is a felony case. The coroners looked at it and said, this, this guy's been murdered by a sword. And all of a sudden, the sheriff in question is intercepted by several gentlemen of Williamsburg, also including his attorney, John Wales. On the next episode of Tenfold More Wicked on Exactly Right. Colonel Chisel, he is as gentry as they come. He is kind of a jerk. No one seems to particularly care for the guy, but is wealthy, well-connected. The public jail that you've been in is the place where anybody who committed a murder is to be held. I, I certainly cannot think of anybody who received the privilege of getting to go back to his own house. We're talking about somebody who outright murdered his friend, and then his friends tried to give him a privileged position. So you're beginning to see those fissures that I was talking about. The status quo is under siege. And this bigger question always is, is who's in charge, who matters, and who gets to make those decisions? If you love a good, real ghost story, my audiobook, The Ghost Club, is available on Audible now. I can't wait to tell you the real story about the world's most famous ghost hunter, who was the head of the world's most famous ghost club, and how he investigated England's most famous haunted house. Please also check out my books, American Sherlock and All That Is Wicked. This has been an Exactly Right, Tenfold More Media production. Producer Jason Whaling, Senior Producer Alexis Amorosi, Consulting Producer Kyle Ryan, Researcher Nicole Brown, Sound Designer Eric Friend, Composer Curtis Heath, Artwork Nick Toga, Executive Producers Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold More Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold More.